I want you to think about how much life has changed in the last 10 years, professionally, technologically, politically, globally, in your relationships. Think about how much change you have experienced, how different life is. Well, for the last 10 consecutive years, Keeley Companies has been named a top workplace by St. Louis Post-Dispatch. Their most important assets are their people, also known as the Keelians, and are credited as the backbone of their business. You can learn more about the Keeley Company's dedication to their employees by visiting KeeleyCompanies.com. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to the Live Inspired podcast with John O'Leary. One of my favorite expressions to share is this, that everybody's got a story. It's just frequently not the story they share with the world. Everybody's got a story. That's true. It's frequently not the story we share with the world. Frequently, we hide that story. We bury that story. We cover it up. We mask it up. We put makeup up over it. That was my experience for the first 20 years or so after recovering from burns as a child. My dream as a kid was not to become a podcast host, believe it or not. It was not to become a speaker, believe it or not. It was not to write books or run a business or whatever else might be going on in my life professionally today. My dream was to be ordinary. That may not sound uh, overly extravagant to you, but after spending five and a half months in hospital and going through the recovery and losing your fingers to amputation and having scars that cover your body from the neck to the toes, the dream's not to stand out. It's to disappear. It's to disappear. And I did that well for almost 20 years until a group of doggone it, three Girl Scouts invited me to share the story of what happened to me as a kid. And I went to this little group, shared the message, and then to another group, and then to a third group. And over the last 16 or 17 years, we partnered now with 2,000 clients, 49 states, looking at you, Alaska, couple dozen countries, a couple million people live sharing a story of life, of abundance, of resiliency, of faithfulness, of courage, of selflessness, of significance, of focusing on the things that matter, staying within your circle of influence, controlling the things you can, letting go of the rest, and taking the next right step forward. I begin today's podcast with this preamble because that is the story of our guest today. It's a story of a girl who never fully felt comfortable in her own skin, in her own background. She wasn't one place well or where she was well, and so she was neither the places where she was in life ever. She wore a mask for the first 39 years of her life, and yet ultimately in embracing her story, you're going to realize not only how it changed her life, but how it's changed the lives of those that she is feeling called to serve today. This is the story of a woman named Bonnie Gray. She grew up in American Chinese daughter. Are you ready for this? 
of a mail order bride and a busboy working in San Francisco Chinatown. Today, though, she feels like she does belong. She feels like she does fit in. She feels like she is beloved and beautiful. And after you hear her story, you will feel that same way, not only about her, which is awesome, but even more importantly, about yourself, about your journey, about your role in this world, and about the truth that the best of your days, the best of our journey remains ahead of us. So my friends, get ready to buckle up, get ready to go along for a wild global ride on this one as I introduce you to my friend and soon to be yours. Her name is Bonnie Gray. Bonnie, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Oh my gosh, it's so wonderful to have this virtual cup of jasmine tea with you. It took a while, but the jasmine has finally fully opened. The tea is delicious and I'm thrilled to have this time with you as, as I just shared. I loved your book. So the, the first question is, why'd you write it? There were two reasons. One is that we hear enough stories of perfect people living these great lives, but most of us are just everyday people. And we, I'm always looking for a story where I could feel somebody's down in the valley moments, because I think that's what is meaningful to know that we're not alone in this world. So I want to write it because I want to say, you know, just because our stories aren't perfect doesn't mean they're not beautiful. Your story starts off so radically different than my story. I, I grew up in the Midwest. I grew up with two extraordinarily loving, faithful, high-functioning parents, four grandparents, all living within six miles of one another, easy, privileged, good childhood. In reading yours, I recognized immediately yours was so different than mine. So why, why don't we start by talking about your mother and how she came to the United States. And then we'll talk about your father. And then we'll just talk about some of your experiences as a kid. So talk about your ama. Yeah, ama means in Chinese mother. And ama was a mail order bride from Hong Kong. She was chosen among eight siblings to be the one to marry a stranger 10 years older. And so she came from Hong Kong and her family had been refugees from China, mainland China during the cultural revolution. And then they went to Hong Kong and then they wanted to have a better life. So my mother wasn't the oldest. She wasn't a son. So she was not favored. And in fact, she was asked to quit school when she was 13 years old. So she could take care of her siblings. And I tell this story because that's how my story began. It began in a way that I would have never chosen, John. My father was a busboy in a noodle shop. They married each other. So my story began not out of love, especially being born here in San Francisco, Chinatown in America. It's just really odd. I felt odd because in America, there's freedom of choice, right? You can choose who you want to love. You can choose when you get married. Everything's about free choice, free will. But yet my story didn't begin that way. So I, I always just kind of felt odd and, and invisible because I couldn't share those kind of stories with people I was growing up with. I was just so different. Mom is sent over to the United States to marry your dad, who was a bus boy in this noodle shop. And they, they don't speak English. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. From your earliest memories. And I know you only know, you see life through your lens and you think that's ordinary. But what was their relationship like as a little girl looking up at both of them? When I was growing up in San Francisco, Chinatown, for all I knew, I could have been in Hong Kong because we ate Chinese food. 
we spoke Chinese, everybody in the shops spoke Chinese, and even the movies we watched. There were three different movies within the same street of the hospital I was born in and the house we lived in. Three, John, three movie theaters, all featuring movies from Hong Kong and Taiwan. They spoke Chinese. So if I didn't turn on the TV and saw Bert and Ernie from Sesame Street, I would have never known that I was in America. So I had these two worlds where you asked me as a little girl, what it's, what was it like looking at my mom and dad? It's like, obviously I knew them. They were my parents, but also I, I thought it was kind of strange and odd. Why, why are my parents speaking Chinese, but everybody on TV speaking English? Those who have immigrant experiences relate to that, whether you're Chinese or Latina or Filipino or Eastern Europe, you know, anybody that's an, an immigrant or come from an immigrant family would understand that feeling. Someday, one of my kids might be asked the question, what were your mom and dad like? And what were they like together, kids? And I would imagine they'll realize mom and dad occasionally fought, but gosh, they really did love each other. Like my, I hope Jack, Patrick, Henry, and Grace recognize to the degree that their parents really respect and honor and love one another. And I hope that carries forward into the next generation. It's my understanding that your upbringing was very different than the ones my children are experiencing. What was it like witnessing the marriage between a mail order bride and the bus boy from a, from a noodle shop? That's what, what was hard for me because every child wants to be able to see what they hear like on TV or in movies or people at friends and I didn't see that. My mother kept to herself. We were often in our, our room. Um, it was intergenerational home where there's you know four different families living there. My dad was usually gone. He worked as a busboy, so I never really saw him. He worked six days a week. And then the only times that I would see him, they'd be arguing and fighting. It's really hard because there is never this loving place. They don't, they were not friends. My mom was more like somebody to quote unquote, serve the family. She would cook the meals. She would go grocery shopping. The arrangement is very different. The wife is brought over to America to be the wife. Now this is not true in every arranged marriage, but it was true for my family that my mom was there really to serve the in-laws, to cook the meals, to like have children. And I, I wasn't a beloved child because there were already a lot of granddaughters in the family of my father. So this is according to Amma that they wanted a son. So I always felt like that pressure that I needed to prove I was just as good as a, as a boy, as a son. And especially growing up in America, all my teachers, I went to public school, they did a great job. You know, they're always like, you can do and be anything you want. You know, girls and boys are the same. And so I kind of grew up with the thought like, I, I need to take that mindset and prove to my parents, prove to my Chinese American family, I am just as good as a boy. That kind of shaped my identity that I don't want to be like the girl in my family. I needed to be the firstborn, like the son. I can perform. I can take care of my family. I can do anything a boy can do. In reading your book and in listening to your stories and following your work online, I'm moved by the fact I don't know whether you were more negatively influenced by your father's absence. I think he left at age seven, never to return, or your mother's chronic negativity and shallowness. 
and the way she raised you and treated you and spoke to you and expected completely unfair things from you. It's a question, I guess. As, as you look back on your childhood, the teachers you said were there for you. And we'll go through a couple other characters who absolutely were there for you. Uh, Mr. O'Neill, among many others, but your father wasn't. So let's start with that. What was it like growing up now as this girl who's trying to make her way in the United States with a Chinese mother and this culture, but not quite fitting in? What was it like growing up without a dad around? Well, I like to tell this story because I think stories really bridge where we're at and find that we have a lot in common. The day my father left, I was seven years old. I was just kind of rubbing the sleep out of my eyes, waking up. And as usual, they're arguing, they're fighting. And this was happening at the screen door, except this time my father had some suitcases by the door. Now this really was confusing. Like what is going on? The last image I have of my father is of him driving off the driveway, peeling out his tires, peeling off the driveway in his olive green Nova. And I'm just asking Ama, Ama, where is Baba going? What's going on? She's like, get over here. And she pulls out these photo albums, our family photo albums from the console. And she starts taking out photos of him from those vinyl pockets and starts cutting up the picture straight into his face. And it's kind of like all over the living room. She's like in a rage. And she says, here, she gives me a pair of scissors, cut up his photos. I don't want one picture of this man in our house. Now, as I'm cutting up these photos, John, I'm trying to hide one photo because I want a picture of my father. Yeah. And Ama says, what are you doing? She caught me. She says, what, why are you trying to hide that photo? And I said, well, I'm not in it. You're not in it. Can I just save one photo? Oh, why? Oh, you love him so much. You like your dad so much. She pulled me by the neck, you know, the collar my, of my shirt dragged me across the room back in the day when phones used to be on the wall and she starts dialing. I know now as a grown-up, she's pretending, but she's dialing saying, okay, go pack your bags. You're not living here. You're not my daughter. You're, you're, you're leaving. You like him so much, go live with him. And right then and there, John, I stopped crying. I wiped the tears from my face. And I said, Amma, no, I, I don't need to know. I figured he's not here. He's gone. My mom is all I have. So right then and there, it's almost like I made an unintentional vow that, you know, things that I can't change, I'm not gonna ask about. Unless what I have to say is gonna help anybody or, um, you know, add to the family's peace or joy, I'm just gonna stay quiet. And it was kind of stoked into me, this, this, this idea that what I can't change, I'm just gonna forget about it. Mm. So the green Nova peels out of the driveway and will remain peeled out. You will not see your dad for almost three decades. And the story you shared about your mother will not be the only time you see her fly off in a rage. It will not be the only time you see her grab that phone or grab a pair of scissors and do damage with it. We could spend more time on your mom, but the, the good news is in your life, right on time, the right person showed up for you. And I just want our listeners to recognize that, um, yeah, that, that person's out there for them, no doubt. And we are called to be that individual for people in our communities, people in our neighborhoods, people in our family, and even strangers. So I just want to go through a couple examples of people who showed up for you. Your father's gone, your mother's there, but not there, not healthily there. 
let's talk about Mr. O'Neill. Who, who was Mr. O'Neill and how did this gentleman positively influence your life? Well, up until that point, I thought that the best way I could succeed in life was to get a high school degree because my mom stopped working when she was 13 years old and both my father and mother didn't graduate from high school. So from where I was sitting, John, graduating from high school was a big deal. Like I'm, I'm already doing better in life. And I thought I would graduate from high school because I actually had to look at job listings for my mother working odd jobs. And I knew from just looking at the want ads that the high school diploma is like the minimum bar. So I figured I'll, I'll get a job, help my family out, make money. Um, so I enrolled in this uh, program. It is a summer program for low income uh, uh, students from low income families. I signed up for it, just like I signed up for the free lunch card. I signed up, I, I looked and I saw there was this program for kids from low-income families and it's a job training job skills training program at a community college at foothill college now i have watched dr huxtable on tv but i'd never interacted with a, a african black american man before and mr o'neill was the first he's like a giant he's over six feet tall but he looked like Dr. Huxtable. Okay, he had like tortoiseshell glasses. He had cute dimples. He's a tower of a man. He's wearing like button plaid shirt. And the first day when he came to talk to us, he told us that he had graduated from an Ivy League school from yeah. Princeton. And to me, that was like royalty. I mean, I the kind of you know place I grew. I grew up below the poverty line. I don't know anybody that went to college or graduated from. Ivy League school. So I was like, woo, you know, like, Whoa, you know, woo. And, um, you know, he was kind of like a tough guy. He was like, look, if you follow my rules, we're gonna, gonna get along fine, but you need to follow my rules. He's, he's kind of that kind of guy that's trying to help people to, you know, get them straight. I was lucky enough to snag one of the jobs that was formatting floppy disks. This is back in the day when we had floppy disks. So Mr. O'Neill, uh, one day we we're sitting there in the computer lab and he says, hey, Bonnie, so um, what college are you going to go to? Where, where are you going to apply? I said, I'm, I'm not going to college. I'm, I'm not applying. He's like, what? You know, he turns to me and he goes, what are you talking about? And I said, well, I mean, I don't have any money. I just want to graduate from high school and get a job to help mom, my mom and my younger sister. My sister's five years younger than me. So it's, I was really like a second mom to her because my mom would work odd jobs and I was always at home to take care of my sister. And Mr. O'Neill said, no, you're not. He said, you're, you're not staying here. He started going into his more like a fatherly figure. And I had not seen that before because he was just kind of like a really strict super, you know, boss supervisor. And he said, you're, you're not staying here, girl. You're going to go to college. And I want you applying for Ivy League schools. And I said, no, no, you, you don't know my mom. He's like, yes, I do. And it's so odd because I never told him this story, but somehow Mr. O'Neill knew the situation I was in. And he's like, you have to leave your mom. I didn't include this in the book, John, but he said, you have to leave your mom. You can't stay. You're going to live a different life than your mother. Now, this is the amazing thing, listeners, you know, we can use our journey, our experience of speaking to somebody else. Cause I had no idea. I was floored. I was speechless. Like, how, wait, how does he know Ama? And he, plus he's African-American. He's not Chinese. Like, what are you talking about? 
And then he told me, he's like, wait, did you know that there are scholarships? Did you know that you can get loans? And I did not know. I did not know. You would think the word college that you hear about it, you would assume everybody would know about college. And I am telling you, I did not know. So, so somebody that grew up in a, you know, underprivileged situation, those kind of words don't apply to you. It's almost like you, 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 you scratch them out, like going to Disneyland for the summer. Okay. Like, what's that? That's like a foreign language. So college was one of those words. They just didn't apply to me. And that changed the trajectory of my life because every summer now, because of Mr. O'Neill, he would mentor me. He would talk to me about what does it mean to go to college? How do you get loans? And how do you choose your major? And what do you want to do? What do you want to be? And he got into my business, which, you know, I'm grateful for because he wanted to know what's going on with your mom, what's going on with your sister. So we can get into each other's business. How? When we share our own journey. Hmm. So, you know, a lot of us hide our brokenness. We're like, oh gosh, I just want to be like everybody else. Well, guess what? We don't, we don't need that. We don't need any cookie cutter people. We need you. Whatever valleys you've walked through, what might've been dark time for you, you can be coming along somebody else that you can show them the way. Mm. And that's what Mr. O'Neill did for me. Mr. O'Neill shows you the way. He casts a vision. He believes in you. Maybe before you believed in yourself, you go home and you tell mom, hey, I got some news. Yeah, I'm thinking about college. And we could spend the next 25 minutes discussing your mother's reaction, but let, let it be very clear. Mom was profoundly against this idea. She knew that Bonnie would never go to college, was nothing. She came from nothing, would never be nothing, anything. And she would always be stuck as Amma's daughter. That's all she ever was. But luckily for us, Bonnie, you set out for UCLA. You followed Mr. O'Neill's advice. And then you talked about a valley a moment ago. You're about to go from the mountaintop experience. You're a UCLA freshman rocking and rolling and truly having the time of your life to, uh, an, again, another extraordinarily difficult experience with a guy you respected. Would you share to the degree that you're comfortable part of that story? Because I didn't have a father growing up. And I was telling you how I really identified with kind of the strong um, masculine aspects that I am not going to be like Ama. I didn't want to be like her. I wanted to prove that I was just as good as a son. And because I didn't have a father, I didn't even know what it would be like to relate to a guy. I didn't date in high school. I was really focused on getting out of my low income situation. And I was going for that American dream right? All to say that I didn't have any experience dating. So when I went to college, I was finally out of the thumb of my mother, who's super controlling and just not a loving presence in my life. And I was like, okay, I cannot wait to date. Oh my gosh. Like, this is also like part of the American, what I saw as being part of American is I get to date. I get to like go out and have fun and whole college experience. So because I did grow up in a rough neighborhood, I really trusted my gut and my street smarts. Like, I feel like I can read a person pretty well. And so um, I, I'm a believer in um, the Christian faith. Okay. So I joined some Bible study groups on campus and I was like, okay, this is a safe group for me because there's a Bible study leader. And I'd been attending this like faith-based group for a year and knew one of these guys and I'll just call him the guy. Right. And so I was finally asked out on a date towards the end of my freshman year. And I was so excited. I wore a cute jean skirt 
and I bought a new top, you know, save my money. And I'm going on my first date, John. And he picks me up and he's like, hey, by the way, I need to pick up some mail um, at home. Do you mind if we stop by? And then, you know, we can drop my mail off at the post office. I'm like, sure, no problem. And we stop by and I think this is a great chance to kind of check out what his, his surrounding is like, you know, kind of get more insight into who this person is and his house looks neat. The boxes are being checked off. This, this guy's looking good. I was sitting on the couch and, you know, he comes to sit by me, he has the mail. And then I was thinking he's going to give me a hug, but he starts kissing me and I'm like, oh my gosh, this is okay. This is the first date, but okay. I'm going to close my eyes. I'm going to just enjoy this moment. My first kiss. And it didn't turn out to be the kiss that a girl ought to be kissed. It went further and we started um, fighting. I started having to try to kick him off me and it went beyond what any guy that respects a girl should go for. And it was a date rape. I was sexually assaulted. And no matter how hard I fought, I was a pretty strong girl. I could not fight him off. And that was the first moment, my first moment experience as a woman was being raped. Like in terms of my experience of how I identified with myself in, in my, my feminine self was being raped. That was a terrible experience. And I just felt like, why? Why is it that I have to grow up with a broken family and then now a broken first date memory? And that was such a place of sorrow for me. The, the coldness with which he, of course, not only treated you in real time, but then as you go back into the automobile and he drives you back to your place and just the indifference, which is in some regards so much worse than violence. I mean, he's just, it doesn't even matter to him. You are, you're less than nothing as he drops you off again. How do you begin to move forward from that abuse and from being victimized by that guy going forward into your life? How do you, how do you begin redeeming a moment like that? Who do you turn to next? Yeah. So that was interesting because after it happened, because I fought him, I was like, you know, raining fists on his head. It didn't matter. And it's just like, I, I came into this experience realizing, you know what, even if I made the right choices, I can be hurt. And, um, I was just, you know, didn't want to get more in trouble. So I just pretended everything was fine. I was just like, I just leaned on my strengths kind of side. Um, and then, like you said, he just dropped me off and just, you know, says, I'll call you later. But um, I was crying as I was, um, you know, in the shower. And in that moment, it wasn't conscious, John. It was a, uh, a friend of mine from church. She was a, one of the youth counselors. And um, she just said before I left, she said, Bonnie, if you ever need me in college, you make sure you call me. That's all she said. She's like, I'm here for you anytime. She's like, you're going to have so much fun in college, but if you ever need me, please call me. And I'm getting emotional now because, you know, when she saw me off, I just, her name is Emma. And I was just like, yeah, yeah. You know, of course she's going to say that. Bye. You know, I'm going to have a great time in college. I had no real practical like thought in my mind. I was really going to call her, you know, because once you get to college, it's so busy. But I'm crying and I'm emotional because as I'm there taking the shower and I was thinking, oh no, what's going to happen to me? Like what guy's going to want me? Um, you know, like, I don't know what to do. Like, I just literally didn't know. 
Emma's voice came into my mind. And that's why I'm crying because like, it's just so powerful, so emotional. You never know when you say to somebody, I'm here for you, you can call me anytime. It wasn't even intentional. Her voice, her face just came into my mind. And then I just knew, I go, okay, I just have to call her. I need to tell somebody. <clears throat> so I went down to the, you know, down to the lobby and I, I called her. And the first thing she said to me, because I was crying and just couldn't stop. And she just said, okay, just breathe. You're going to be okay, Bonnie. Just you're in after a long while, she asked me what happened. I told her and she didn't even ask me any questions. You know, I learned so much that defining moment that when somebody's in trouble, they're sorrowful, they're broken down, it's not the time to ask questions. And Emma said to me, she's like, Bonnie, she said, I still see you the same. You're still beautiful. You're, God is going to use this in your life. You know, this is going to be used. And she said, I don't see you any less. You're just as beautiful, just as um, you're still my Bonnie. And you know what? That's all I needed to know is that she loved me. She still viewed me the same. And then, you know, as a sister, when she started asking me like how I am, am I okay? You know, but I think that's the most important thing when somebody now I carry that, that, that beautiful legacy, even my children now use it in my parenting. My son's going through soccer um, tryouts and it's, it's hard. He, he got injured and he's devastated in his world. So what am I going to do? I'm not going to recount to him. It's, oh, you know, I'm going to say, you know, I'm so sorry, Josh. I'm here for you. I give him a hug. I'm not going to start telling him, okay, get out of this. See the positive in this. Here's a lesson in this. No, I'm just going to be there to listen to him. Such a tragic and redemptive and grace-filled story. Uh, for, you're speaking to a whole lot of ladies and gentlemen who have been through storms in their own life. Not all of them abused in the manner in which you were, tragically. Not all of them with the upbringing that you experienced. But all of us, to a degree, feel isolated. All of us wonder about self-worth. All of us wonder, will someone truly want me? If they really knew me, me. Would they really want me? So for those of us wondering that right now, what, what advice or encouragement would you offer to us? All of us have a defining moment where something happened that we did not plan. It was not of our choosing, something that wounded us and hurt us. We long for love. We long to no longer be lonely, We're tempted to hide. We're tempted to, to say, you know, this is, this is a messy, broken part of myself. And in order for me to move on, I, I need to hide that. I carried that until I realized that the moment I start sharing my story, actually, that is what is going to draw somebody to love me. So I had to learn that just because somebody takes advantage of my vulnerability and my, my innocence, it doesn't mean that I can, I need to live out of that identity. That's so good. Well, let, let's talk about that story and that person. You mentioned loudly, so for our viewers, you can see I'm John O'Leary. I'm of Irish descent. We are on the call right now with Bonnie Gray. She is from Chinese descent originally, spent some time in Hong Kong on a mission trip. Uh, but she's going to fall in love and be falling in love with, no, not a man from China, not someone from Hong Kong, but from a blonde-haired, blue-eyed boy named Eric. Talk about Eric. 
where'd, where'd you meet him originally? And what was it that first drew you to him? Well, after that happened, you know, that, that damaging thing that happened to me with the guy from college, I actually felt that maybe I, it would be very hard for me to find true love because for some reason, after that point, I did not fall in love. And I thought, well, gosh, maybe that hurt me somehow. Maybe that damaged me because I'm a very sociable person. I love being around people. You know, I'm like, if I'm one of your friends in your circle, John, and listeners, I'm going to be the one that's cheerleading you on. I'm the kind of girl that like stops by Safeway to buy some flowers if some, you know, grocery store here in the States, if, if, if somebody's feeling down, you know, I'm going to be buying those flowers and dropping them off at your doorstep. Um, I'm a very social person, but yet I couldn't fall in love. And so I'm amazed you ever forgave men the, the man in your life walked out on you and the next man in your life abused you. So the fact that you fell in love, even a decade later, is evidence of, of grace and your courage. Because I, I, just in knowing your story, it just breaks my heart that that was your experience with guys. Well, I thought maybe that was my purpose in life. Like I was thinking, wow, all these broken things. Um, I actually became a missionary to delinquent youth in my 20s because I thought, gosh, all these terrible things have happened to me. Um, how can I make bring some meaning and purpose in it? So I decided that I would commit my life to helping other young people, just like Mr. O'Neill. I wanted to be Mr. O'Neill. I wanted to be like my friend, Emma, to help people that are in the valleys in life. And so I, that kind of became my calling and my purpose. Um, I just kind of assumed that love probably wasn't part of life's experiences for me because I couldn't fall in love. Like you said, you know, like, okay, well, I have this broken father. Then I have this guy that happened to me. And I don't know, maybe there's something wrong with my heart. But here's the thing. I thought if I did get married, I have to marry a Chinese American man because, you know, back at home, it's Chinese culture, right? There's Ama. Ama's still here. <laughs> so, I mean, I needed somebody that could step into my family life, the world of the cultural values of Chinese traditional. By the way, listeners, if you meet a Chinese American, don't assume that they're like my Ama. <laughs> okay. Maybe other Chinese American, Asian Americans, like, oh, say that that's not what we're like so just this is for you know bonnie lee gray but anyhow so i was like okay i'm looking for this chinese american guy um so suddenly there's this blonde hair blue-eyed guy he grew up in a mill town in you know southern washington in a small town and um interesting enough he came to visit our uh, singles uh, group in church and we went to a chinese restaurant i live here in silicon valley it's a very diverse area here. There's lots of Chinese restaurants everywhere. We decided to go out for, you know, some food after our, our meeting, our gathering, and we are ordering our Chinese dishes to have them family style and, you know, kind of like placing bets on a poker table while throwing all these names out for Chinese food. And he's, I say, I'll, I want to choose beef chow fun. And he doesn't know what beef chow fun is. This is Eric, by the way. So I'm like, oh my gosh, okay, this guy, I can't believe he doesn't even know what beef chow fun is. This is like a basic Chinese dish. So he would have been the last person on my list as a potential person I would fall in love with. But what happened, John, is that after he came to visit that first night, he wrote me an email. And it started out very short, but I, I was a leader of this 30 singles ministry. So I just wrote to him like I would from any new person. So, oh, thanks for coming to visit. Nice to have you here, blah, blah, blah. But every day for a month, he wrote me and I call them digital letters. 
And so that short email became a series of longer and longer email letter, digital letter exchanges between two people. And nobody ever knew this, but John, my safest place growing up in all this toxicity and difficult times was my journal. My journal is where I could be whoever I wanted to be. I could say whatever I wanted to say. This is my place of safety was my journal. And nobody ever knew this because I, I wasn't allowed by Ahmad to study English. You know, she, that didn't help her out. So she's like, that's selfish. Don't study English. I graduated the computer science degree, but nobody knew, but God knew that to unlocking my heart to fall in love, my language was words. So before we even went out, Eric already kind of captured my heart. It didn't matter that, you know, culturally, it didn't seem like we had anything in common. <laughs> his, his, his family had comes from a long lineage of military service. You know, I, I grew up in California. So to keep it real, I didn't know anybody that even owned a rifle. And yet here we are, soul touching soul. I describe it as moonlight drawing, you know, the ocean's waves with the gravity's pull. We're just being pulled together by the beauty of our words and sharing intimately our stories. So before I even went on a first date with him, I already was falling in love. Well, one of the big first dates down the line, just a couple of weeks, a trip to Six Flags, a trip that won't work for you because one of the obligations for you as a, a good loyal daughter is to be with your mom on every holiday. That's the absolute expectation. So how did it, how did your mother handle it when you said, mom, I'm going to miss out this 4th of July because I'm going to Six Flags with Eric? Now, this is really talking about a lot of the codes that we grow up with in our family. And every family has a code. One of the codes in my family was silence. Keep quiet if you're unhappy. Keep quiet if you have any other emotions that are negative. We don't want to hear about it. That's one and I shared about that, about the cut up pictures. But the second code that we had in our family is that family comes first. So every holiday, I had to spend it with Ama and my family. You cannot spend it with friends because you cannot elevate your friends above your family. Now, this was something that I hid, even though I was working in Silicon Valley and I was actually, you know, leading, you know, 50 different product roadmaps in Silicon Valley. Um, I was, you know, working high up on the org chart. But yet back at home, when I stepped through, I still was living as if I was 17 years old. My mother was the one that was controlling my life. Now, I didn't want to go to ride roller coasters with Eric, even though Eric said, hey, a bunch of us are going to go ride roller coasters. And so I said what I always said to guys, John. I said, oh, yeah, I, I'm not sure if I'll make it. I, I, I'm not too sure yet, but probably not. And he, most guys would just leave it at that but this is different about Eric. He said, why? It's July 4th. You're not working. Why, why wouldn't you go? So I had to make a choice right then and there for the first time. Do I lie to Eric or do I choose? Do I take a step towards what was happiness for me? I'd never taken that step. And so I decided to tell Eric, okay, okay. Yeah, I'll do it. I had no idea what's going to happen to my mom, but um, I went to go tell my mom and I want to read an excerpt if that's okay with you. Please. Okay, I'm going to read an excerpt because I want to share what happened in this scene. So this is Bonnie Gray reading from her newly released book, Sweet Like Jasmine. Yes. 
I'm off. This is just a simple, fun weekend to go ride roller coasters. I haven't dated anyone since college. I'm 31 years old, Amma. Maybe you're right. Maybe it won't last, but I like Eric. I won't know if I don't try. I've taken care of you my whole life. Why can't you be happy for me? I started crying because I was more scared than anything. Scared that I said it so bluntly. Scared because I'd never spoken to my mom like this. How stupid can you be? Ama mocked me. A man comes along and you pays you a little attention and you think that makes you special? Ama scoffed. You have forgotten who you are, Bonnie Lee. You're my daughter. You belong to me. She screamed it at the top of her lungs, her eyes wild with rage, wailing with all her might, like she was blowing air out of her lungs, her face turning purple, her hands balled up in fists. If I thought I was scared before, I was beyond terrified now. I felt like I'd been teleported into another dimension in a horror movie. I thought she would storm out and I would hear her grab her car keys and slam the front door as she often would when I was a little girl leaving me behind alone. Instead, Ahmad tore out thundering into the kitchen and I heard drawers opening and slamming shut. The next thing I knew she flew back into the room with a glint of steel, brandishing a large pair of scissors in her hand. She shoved my sliding closet doors open, violently yanking my clothes off the hangers. She was shaking as she pulled apart my clothes by the neck openings to tear them up, haphazardly cutting up my clothes, running the blade of the shears against my clothes with one hand, tugging them like she was strangling the life out of them. Everything you have, everything you are is because of me. Amma screamed every line as she clawed at my desk, clutching whatever she could get her hands on, ejecting my books, my notebooks, knickknacks, swiping, throwing everything all over my room in a confetti of fury. I stood there, choking in my tears, afraid to move or breathe. Frozen confusion engulfed me. I just wanted to ride the roller coasters with a boy I liked who liked me too. How can something so simple become so very wrong? A thought hit me like a siren. Something is really, really wrong. Gosh, there's a lot there, my friend. Something was very, very wrong for 31 years. And it is that moment that you recognize what part of it was and that you had to start living your life. You could no longer live a life for someone else. You had to begin living your life. The amazing thing, we could spend some time talking about what happened next and then what happens next and then the escape out. But eventually you find yourself in a car with Eric and have the courage not only to go on that, that journey, but to share with him why you almost did not go and what happened when you told your mother. His reaction is so beautiful. Would you just share with our listeners how Eric responded to you sharing this, this epic tale of craze? Yeah, I think that all of us, you know, that live with dysfunction, we've learned to cope with it really well. High functioning, high functioning people, especially leaders or encouragers or caregivers, we have had to deal with a lot of maybe toxicity in our lives and we found a way to be a leader. And so all of us have a defining moment when we realize the way we have coped with life is not working anymore. 
that moment was when my mother started. I thought she might even kill me, John. I thought she's going to end it. Okay. She's so fierce. I'd never crossed that line before. And I ran into the bathroom afraid of my mother. And sometimes it takes something like that where we realize something is very, very wrong. And somebody listening is having to having maybe that realization right now. I, I can't go on living this way. I need to change my life. I need to be inspired. <laughs> to live yes. not just physically your heart beating but your soul your soul needs to live and so i actually felt that i needed to end it with eric because gosh eric is such a sweet boy <laughs> he's he's in his 30s too but i was like oh my gosh i cannot pull sweet eric you know into this crazy life that i have with ama and so i thought you know the best way to end it really is to let him know the whole nine yards. I try to avoid talking about my family. I was like, okay, well, let me just be Cinderella for a few more hours and go down and ride the roller coasters and not talk about family. But Eric did ask me, well, wait, so what's going on with your family? And so I said, okay, this is it. This is going to end right here. And um, I told him, you actually do not want to be with me. I said, you have permission. I'm not going to be hurt. You, I, I'm actually not very normal. I said to him, you, 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 you deserve to be somebody that's more normal. And uh, I remember that moment because we were driving down highway five down to Southern California. And he, he turned to me, he's like, wait, but I, I don't want normal. I want you. Well, he got you and he got joy and he got the whole nine yards, the experiences that led you through a radically different 31 years. Like yeah. Years. And it, and it was, it was funny because I, I, I needed to let him know, no, you, you really don't know. So I went after I told him the whole story and it was a surprise to me. I go, see, now you understand you, you, you probably want to get away as far as you can from me. And he's like, wait, but I don't see what the problem is here. I mean, I don't want to marry your mom. <laughs> <laughs> he's like wait I, I like you I, I don't want to be with your mom and it was so funny like you're laughing now too right that's right uh so listen unfortunately our time together is beginning to move toward its uh toward its conclusion for those who want to hear the entire story or read the entire story Bonnie where can they learn more about your journey well sweetlikejasmine.com is where you can find more information about this journey that I took sweet like Jasmine, sweet like Jasmine.com. And then um, I would love to have people join me if you're looking at wellness, because obviously there's there's so much that I had to heal from. I have a podcast called Breathe, the Stressless Podcast. And then I'm on Instagram at the Bonnie Gray. So I encourage folks to check out all of those resources. I certainly enjoyed reading Sweet Like Jasmine. Even the title of it has so much meaning. Every chapter ends not only with a little scripture that I found very healing, but also like a metaphor from China. Each one of those I thought were just, then them and of themselves, beautiful. So really well done. Uh, we learn a lot about what we want to do in our lives or what we don't want to do in our lives from our parents. I was blessed to learn exactly what I wanted to do in my life from my mom and dad. I want to be like them. In many regards, you learned what not to do from the way your parents were and the way they treated one another and treated you. When you look at Josh and Caleb, your little boys, what do you hope that they look up and see in you? 
you know, I want to le lead a legacy of faith for them. And um, I just want them to know that there's nothing in this life that they cannot overcome with God's love. And also with me standing by their side, the first story I shared with them um, from this book was the one from college. And I wanted to share the one that was most difficult for me to share as a mom, because I didn't know how my boys would view me, but I wanted to share it because I believe in the power of the truth of our stories. And I thought my boys, because they're teenagers, they would be like, TMI mom, I did not want to know that about you. But instead, Josh and Caleb, they turned to me and they said, my youngest Caleb, he turned to me and he said, mom, why didn't you tell us this before? I can't believe this happened to you. I'm so sorry. And he gave me a big hug. He's like, I love you, mom. And then Josh, he's my older son. He's a little more introverted. Um, he's quiet. I said, Josh, let me know. It's okay if you don't feel comfortable knowing this about your mom, but I wanted to let you know more about me as a woman. And um, he said to me, no, mom, I think you're so brave. He's like, I'm so proud of you. You're going to help so many people because as he goes to school, they're all talking about the Me Too movement. And so it's amazing how much our kids will find strength and, and, and also that closeness with us when we share our stories, not just as a parent, but mm -hmm. as human beings. So my relationship with my sons is even more close now. And so I wanted them to know, boys, I want you to know this because no matter what happens to you in life, just like you see from mamas, you know, I'm there, mama, <laughs> you're, you know, life doesn't have to be perfect to be beautiful. And so I can only share that if I share my stories, not just telling them, right? Tragically, we can't drop the mic with that last saying because we sure could. It was really, really well summed up. So inspirational, so encouraging, so beautiful. So thank you for loving your kids enough to be honest with them. The truth will indeed set you free. There are, however, seven questions that we tether all of our guests to. We call them the Live Inspired Seven. So Bonnie Lee Gray, we're going to guide you through seven questions that a few hundred of our dear friends from the past have been asked. So it's safe territory. They're beautiful questions. We're going to begin with number one, kind of a layup, in particular for an author and a prolific writer. But question number one is, Bonnie, what is the most influential book? So what is the most influential book you've ever read? Um, I would say The Color of Water. Wow. It's a book by James McBride, and it talks about how he has a Jewish mother, and he grew up in... Um, he grew up in, you know, a really down and out place, but like how beautiful that story was when, cause he's, he's, he's a mixed ethnicity. And whenever he asks his mom, am I black or am I Jewish? And he said, you're the color of water. What does and that mean? It means God created you. You are the beautiful creation. He made you just like water doesn't have a color. It's the color of water. You are who you are. So you're the beloved, you are John. You know, you're a Bonnie and listener. You are you. You're you're this beautiful, created human being, and we are not to be defined. We each have the power to choose our stories, to rewrite them, and edit them the way we were created to choose. So we should never be held down by what somebody else has put upon us, because you are unique, and we will never have peace in this world or live freely unless we embrace our identity, our true, true identity. So that, that book was life-changing for me. Powerful. What, what is one positive characteristic that you possessed as a little girl growing up 
that you wish you exhibited as brilliantly today? Oh, gosh. Well, I guess I've always been an inquisitive person. I love like being journalistic and I love asking questions. I've always maintained that throughout my life, but I guess the part would be more of my artistic self. I, I just hid that between the journal, the pen and paper now, but now as a writer, I'm able to express that fully in the world. If your home caught fire and your three boys are out safely and then the animals you may have are out safely, and you, you had an opportunity to run back in and grab one item safely. What's the one thing you would run back in and save? I guess my journals. Bringing out the journals. Yes. What about this? If you could sit on a bench on a gorgeous Bay Area day, there aren't many. Sometimes it's cold, sometimes it's hot, but it's a gorgeous day. You're on a bench sitting next to anybody, living or deceased. Who's the one person you want to be seated right next to? Living or deceased? Well, I can't help it, but say Jesus. <laughs> I mean, I've always read, I mean, I read the Bible as like letters to me. I never read it as a religious document. I always read it as uh, letters because I was always so lonely as a child. And I, I love the poetry in the Bible. I love the story. So I would want to just talk to him, <laughs> like have a conversation. There's, there's a spiritual understanding of, of even the way Jesus refers to God as our father, our father. And so some people wonder why, why in the masculine sense and, and the rationale some offer is that there, Jesus knew there would be such a need to have a, a safe father in your life that you could turn to that with so many of us would grow up without that example. And so for us to be able to look up and say, our father, Abba, Abba, our daddy, who is in heaven, hallowed be that name. And, and so uh, I think it's brilliant that you chose to sit next to the father. Well, you know, Jesus, one of the um, scenes that really drew me to him is when he was lonely in the garden um, before he, you know, had to make his sacrifice of his life. He was very lonely. He was going to be separated from his father. And I felt like he understood me because I've cried so much as a little girl, wishing that I had my father, I would check the mailbox every birthday to see if he would send me something he never did. And so I actually, the Jesus I first met that I trusted was the lonely Jesus. It was his loneliness that allowed me to feel like he's somebody that I would trust. If somebody understands loneliness and sorrow, I'm going to be trusting that person. But good news, of course, is Jesus doesn't just know loneliness. He loves us and he walks us through the hard times. So I think that that's one of the superpowers we have when any of us have been through hard times, we can be that hand to hold somebody. We can be that presence to walk with somebody along their hard times because most people want to fix other people. But what makes this world beautiful is that we have a place in this world where we can say, you know, you can stay here, you're safe and you're welcome just as you are. How cool that you had a whole lot of those folks show up for you in your life. We talked about a few of them, but only a few of them today. Uh, what's the best advice that one of those individuals or Pastor Rich Carlson or your, your mother or father or grandmother or anyone else in your life, maybe it's Eric, what's the best advice you've ever received? Well, um, you know, a lot of my life has been trying to find where I belong you know, and I, I'd always trying to find like, okay, what's my five-year plan? What's my 10-year plan? And, and one time, um, like you said, Pastor Carlson, I, I was just, just wasn't sure. Like, I, I don't know where I'm supposed to be. He's like, you're, you're right where you're supposed to be right here. 
right here is where you're supposed to be. And so that is a clarifying beacon of echo. Whenever I feel lost, I said, rather than trying to find out where I need to be, I can embrace right here is where I belong. What can I do? What can I share right where I'm at? And that's why I wrote the books that I do. It's, I love this question because that's where I write. I'm the kind of writer that writes from where I'm at right now. Uh, most of us live in the right now. We don't live at the end of the rainbow. We don't live on the mountaintop most of the time. We live on the journey in the middle of, and that's where we need each other. That's why we're all lonely because we're all holding our breaths, waiting for you know, the rainbow on the other side. And, and actually we need each other when it rains. We need to be holding that umbrella to help each other, keep each other dry and say, hey, come on in come and have a cup of tea, come and have, you know, pancakes or noodles or whatever it is. And while it's raining, we have safe refuge with each other. See, I, you said most people are living right now. And I know what you're saying. I would suggest though, most people are not living right now. Most people are living in yesterday or dreading tomorrow. And that's why depression and anxiety and isolation and loneliness are at, at pandemic levels. The true pandemic is not COVID. That's part of it. No doubt. There's a global pandemic among us. And there's nothing new under the sun. We've seen this before. We'll see it again. But the global pandemic that was here before COVID and tragically will be here after COVID is isolation, anxiety, loneliness, and this feeling that our life is valueless. In your words and in your work, you remind us that we're priceless and we should live in this moment. It's all we got and it's enough. It's a great encouragement. So now my second to final question, one behind this one is what would you tell your 20-year-old self? If you could go back in time, this little girl at UCLA, a young woman now, what would you tell that 20-year-old? Well, I would tell her because I didn't live my life fully choosing my own path until my 30s. I would tell her, choose your path now. You should not edit yourself. You cannot live in this world somebody else's story. You need to live your own story. And no matter what the cost is, it's worth it. You are worth it. And um, so that's my message today to whoever I meet. When I hear their story, ask them what's going on, what are you passionate about, um, what is getting you down, I will say the same thing. You are worthy. You are worth the joy that you often give to others so readily. You're worth the comfort that you so readily give to others. You are worth it. Bunny Lee Gray, author, mother, spouse, daughter. Uh, beautiful lady. It has been said that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like your one sentence to read? You're beloved, <laughs> just as you are. Bonnie Lee, you are indeed beloved, just as you were as a child, are as a lady, and will be for eternity. I want to thank you for being part of our Live Inspired podcast today. I want to thank you for sharing your story. It took a lot of courage, but it's touching a lot of lives. Thank you so much, John, for being the kind of person that I would feel at home with in order to share my story. Thank you, John, for who you are and the journey you have walked. Well, that, my friends, is Bonnie Lee Gray. She's the author of Sweet Like Jasmine. My name is John O'Leary. And today is your day, my friends. Choose to live inspired. Well, friends, I wanted to thank you again for joining us as part of the Live Inspired podcast community. 
there was a lot around Bonnie's story that really resonated with me. But there was one quote she said in particular that moved me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share this with you word for word. Here it is. All of us, and this is true, by the way, all of us have a defining moment where something happened that we did not plan. We long, it turns out, for love. We are tempted to hide our brokenness. And then she went on to say, I carried that with me until I realized that sharing my story is actually going to draw others closer to the possibility of theirs. It's beautiful language. It's truth. And it's time, I think, in our lives to embrace the fullness of that in our journey. If you wanted to learn more about Bonnie's story, around my story, around your story, around how we collectively can more fully live out our stories, check us out right now at johnolearyinspires.com forward slash podcast. I'm going to say that one more time for those of us listening in for the first time. Go to johnolearyinspires.com forward slash podcast. There are hundreds of truly remarkable episodes to tune into. But if you're wanting one specifically tethered to the one you heard a moment ago, you may want to listen into Brian Walsh. Brian's got a remarkable story himself of being burned. He is found at episode 272. But this is a man who is resilient. This is a man who's got tenacity. This is a man who's going to help you shift your perspective from wishing things had not happened to you to recognizing the beauty of fully embracing them and understanding what you can do next to not only make your world a better world, but to make the world itself better because of what you've been through. So check it out. It is found at episode 272. His name, he's my buddy, is Brian Walsh, and you can learn more about him and all of our other leaders at johnolearyinspires.com forward slash podcast. So brothers and sisters, family and friends for this time. And until next time, my name is John O'Leary. Today is your day. What a gift it is. Live inspired. My hometown of St. Louis is an awesome baseball town. For those of you who know my story, you know that story. You know the impact of the St. Louis Cardinals and Jack Buck and baseball on my life. You also know it's a phenomenal hockey town. And for those who have read the book On Fire or know the impact of the St. Louis Blues, not only in this community, but also on a little boy named John O'Leary, you know that it's a hockey town as well. What you may not know is the town keeps expanding. We are now, drumroll please, a soccer town as well. That's right. We've been a soccer town for a while, but now it's official with MLS moving to St. Louis. And our friends at Keeley Companies are proud construction partners in building the new stadium, downtown St. Louis, focusing on applying their extensive building experience, their commitment to developing, and then implementing a successful workforce development with diversity and inclusion. Keeley Companies CEO and my friend Rusty Keeley said this, we are honored to be part of the project of creating a positive legacy in St. Louis. Learn more about that project and other projects going on at Keeley Companies by visiting them right now online at keeleycompanies.com.